0: All right, well, recall a couple of weeks ago, we ended our short series by examining an account pertaining to David and Bathsheba. Tyler came in last week, we took a little absence from that, and we're pretty much done with dissecting the account pertaining to David and Bathsheba, but I want to recap briefly today before we jump into Psalm chapter 15, because I kind of go together. So, recapping real briefly of what we learned about David and Bathsheba. Remember, early in the beginning, we learned that it was spring, a time in which David and his men would typically go to war. But upon this particular occasion, David stayed at home. His men went to war. He stayed at home in the palace. So we learned, as we began to read the account of David and Bathsheba, that David, upon an afternoon of resting, awakes. He goes out to the rooftop of the patio of his palace, and he notices a woman bathing, described as a very beautiful woman bathing. Now at that particular moment, we talked about how he should have, if he'd done the right thing, he should have turned away and found maybe some other kingdom activities to occupy his time. However, his idle time got the best of him. He looked upon the woman and looked maybe even further and closer. He began to look and he began to lust he also then inquired about the woman and instructed then his servants to bring her to him. Well, the woman, of course, is not unnamed. We learned her name it is Bathsheba. Remember as well as we learned the woman's name, Bathsheba, that she, we looked upon her a little critically, was not without some responsibility herself. She was not an innocent bystander necessarily. I mean, she chose, first of all, we recognize, to bathe in the middle of the afternoon where it's possible that she could be looked upon the rooftop while she was bathing. Her bathing at that particular time, we said, thereby bypassed the custom of the Hebrews to have modesty exercised by the women. So she was not without some fault of her own. However, going back to David, we would noticed then as a result of Her actions, Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop, and David's lustful inquiry about who she is, eventually she comes to David. And they both willingly lie together in a moment of passion. Afterwards, we learn she just returns home. But then soon after that, we also learn that she is with child. It is David's child. So when David learned that his woman that he had been with Bathsheba is with child his child he has one or two things that he can do he can either come clean and admit his fault his sin he can admit that to god as one choice or he can begin to listen to the enemy begin to listen to the master of deceit satan himself and he can begin to deny it as if it never happened or completely cover it up So David, of course, chose the latter and tries to cover up that sinful, lust-filled decision he had to be with Bathsheba. So in his attempt to cover up, he sends Bathsheba's husband named Uriah, who, by the way, is on the battlefield with the rest of the men, he sends for Uriah to come home, hoping that Uriah would take the opportunity to lie with his wife, thereby making Uriah possibly the father of the child in which Bathsheba is with. However, Uriah is a righteous, upstanding soldier, loyal to both the king and the country, and does not go home to be with his wife Bathsheba, but rather stays at the doorstep with the other servants of the palace of David. So essentially, David's plan backfired, but he wanted to cover it all, get Uriah involved, and it backfired because Uriah didn't go there. So then David thinks further, what can I do? His deceit, his manipulation, his lying, his cover-up is not over yet. So he comes up with a new plan. His new plan is to get rid of Uriah. So then David invites Uriah to come eat, to dine. He gets him drunk. And at the same time, then ultimately gives Uriah his destined a note for him to carry back to Joab. Now, Joab is a commander of war. Uriah eventually goes back to war. And he takes that note that David had given him, which reads to put Uriah on the front line where the battle is the most fierce. Joab reads the note. Puts, sure enough, Uriah in the fierce battle. And, of course, Uriah eventually dies, along with many other innocent men in the battle. In all that, it was an ugly scenario. that just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It demonstrated how one sin can have a domino effect. The initial sin of adultery, results in a continuation of bad choices, bad decisions, and sin after sin after sin that ultimately ruined and affected many lives. The entire account that we dissected over three weeks revealed for us that sin always bears consequences, often impacting the lives of innocent bystanders. We had mentioned at that moment that it reminds all of us, the account itself reminds all of us that every action we have, really good or bad, always has a consequence. Of course, the bad ones, the consequences, I mean, the bad choices, bad decisions are what we're really examining and looking upon. So when that happens, we have the temptation to confront us and come into our life and it shall happen. We said it's always best to think through our actions. When tempted, think it through. Don't rush in. Proverbs 14 16 says the wise are cautious and avoid danger. Fools plunge ahead with reckless confidence. So, yes, fools rush in, and it often leads to regret. Not only can it be regret, it can also lead to unhappiness and to sorrow. So, what should we do? in our lives then the question for today to avoid the scenario like what happened with David I may mean, the question we focus on today as we get into psalm 15 the psalm we're going to find today provides direction for how we can avoid falling into a similar trap now mind you our trap we have in life may not be precisely like David's and that it falls into adultery but nonetheless we a lot of times Will still fall into the trap that the master of lies has set for us. So then, leaving behind the story of David and Bathsheba, we turn to a psalm, a psalm that is written by David, a psalm that points to how we can avoid the allurement, avoid the enticement of our enemy, a psalm that offers us the advice of how. We shall live. Psalm chapter 15, five verses. Stand with me this morning if you're able to, as we do so to honor the reading of the word. And we find Psalm chapter 15, the five verses saying this. First of all, recognize it says, A Psalm of David. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And then it seems to answer. Verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Father, we come to you in presence today, Lord, having read your word. And we pray today, Lord, as we move to a message today to tell us how to avoid the snare the devil traps for us, that us, Lord, recognize that there is a way in which we can say no to the enemy, a way in which we shall live, a way which we shall live that others can see, there is definitely something different about us. So we invite your spirit today then to lead and to guide and direct us here this morning. We thank you in advance for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, while this is a Psalm of David, notice again the superscription at the beginning of the message in verse 1. I mean, it clearly tells you in the very beginning it's a psalm of David. But it's interesting, then, as we learn that this is written by David, that in dissecting an account that we did for multiple weeks of David and Bathsheba, that David never followed his own advice. Now, we'll never know completely why that is so. But nonetheless, this psalm points us to a method of staying true to God and withstanding the enemy's constant pursuit. The psalm, in essence, reveals how we shall live, which is indeed a topic worth discussing, especially in light of the way the culture and society today is living. So then with that, let us return to the text and review the psalm and discover how we shall live and how we can avoid the entrapment of the enemy. And we can take Psalm 15, which is not at all a long text to consider. Five verses. We can take those five verses, begin to summarize what David is offering here for advice, place into our lives, and find two things that we should be doing. And they are this. Number one, simply obeying God's precepts. I mean, his instructions, his guidance, his teachings, his, his training, his principles. We should be obeying God's precepts, essentially His Word. And the second one, then, just like it, or similarly to some extent, is trusting God's promises. Two things that we can summarize from these five verses that we should do to avoid the entrapment of the devil and how we shall live is obeying God's precepts and trusting God's promises. Let's take some time to expand upon each of them. Again, the first one is obeying God's precepts. So notice we go back to the text. So right after it tells us to the author, the superscription, there is a question or questions. And noticeably it's like David is asking the questions. He says, O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now, it's worth pointing out here that David, as the author, is asking God, who shall dwell in your presence? I mean, his presence, God's presence indicative that it says, sojourn in your heart, or in your tent, and dwell on your holy hill. I mean, it's telling us then that David wants to know who can dwell within the presence of the Lord. David then writes the answer, which we're going to get back to in just a moment. But before we do so, in verses 2 through 5, a quick explanation of why maybe David asked in this particular manner. So then notice while David, again, according to the superscription, is the author, that removes any debate that David is the author of the psalm. The context in which he's writing is a matter of debate. So there are, what scholars find, two possibilities. One possibility in which the context of which David is writing the psalm is suggested that he did so after he successfully brought the sacred Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant and all of its details are written in 2 Samuel, chapter 6. But bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem was a very serious, somber, solemn occasion. So it's quite possible that David wrote the particular psalm we're examining this morning to establish what kind of conduct should be expected of those who come to dwell within the midst of God. That's one possibility upon the Ark of the Covenant, come back to Jerusalem for people to dwell in the midst of God. The second possibility, which maybe is even more suggested by scholars is real, is that it pertains to when David wrote the psalm when he became king of Israel. After the death of Saul, most people believe that David immediately became king of Israel. However, that is not entirely true. Yes, David became king but he became the king of Judah. The king of Israel at that moment was ish In 2 Samuel chapter 2 we learn this. It says Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took ish the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanam. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites. In verse 10 it says ish Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. He reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. So, notice the very first king after Saul, we so often think, yes, it's David, it shall be. But the immediate king by the people presented for Israel was Ishbosheth. Now, in the passing of time, a battle begins to ensue at Gibeon. That results in Ishbosheth's death. I actually read the text later you're going to go and find out he was assassinated. But upon Ishbosheth's death, the men gather then and make David king over all of Israel and Judah. In Second Samuel chapter five. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David the Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So yes, David does become the king. So one possibility the scholars suggest that when this psalm was written is during this time when David was becoming the king of Israel. So then afterward, when David assumed the throne, he then made Jerusalem the site of his residence. But not only his residence, but regarding Jerusalem, also known as Mount Zion, the holy hill as referred to in the psalm, the tabernacle, as the sanctuary of God, the place in which God dwells. So then David, having desire in his heart to know God better and to be in fellowship with him, asked the question that we find in verse 1. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? Notice the essence of the question was not only to establish the conduct of those who desire to come in the presence of God, like David was wanting to do, but also then established how we shall live. It's how we shall live, how we can avoid the entrapment of the enemy. So then there's the question that we must answer for today. Having heard that, the question is, how then shall we live? In modern day, should we be living any differently than what is suggested in Psalms 15? Does this psalm truly tell us how we can avoid the entrapment of the enemy? For that matter, what is the standard of conduct? Do we have a standard of conduct to come within the presence of the Lord? Those questions are asked toward the text, and we get an answer that yes, the answer is that we must obey God's precepts, his teachings, his principles, his guidance, his instructions. Notice in the verses, it tells us specifically, by the words of David, as he's asking the Lord, the things we should be doing to avoid the snare of the enemy, but also how we should be living. In verse 2, he said we should live blamelessly. He who walks blamelessly we're going to find blamelessly does not mean perfection. Not one of us in here are perfect in any way. I know I come rather close. So what you may see in front of you with the Hawaiian shirt today may be as close to what you may find as perfection. Okay? But none of us are perfect in any possible way. So we're blameless. We live blamelessly, which we'll expand upon in a moment. But he tells us we must walk blamelessly do what is right. Speak truth in your heart. Speak honestly. He says in verse 3, We should not be gossiping. Does not slander with his tongue. We don't use cursed language. We do no wrong to the neighbor. Do no evil to him or take up reproach. These are the things that David is telling us then as he's thinking about the situation, however he had written in a context, of who shall be in the presence of the Lord. Now, I ask you this. Doesn't that make logical sense of how we should be living and then of how we can avoid the entrapment of the enemy? To try to live as holy and blameless as we are. I mean, we know that are not going to be sinless and perfect, but shouldn't we striving to be as blameless as possible, as holy as we can be to imitate God? Shouldn't we not want to be slanderous people? always talking bad about somebody? Or using language do we know we shouldn't use? Gossipy? I mean, should we not want to make harm to our neighbor? Not literally the neighbor, but we know literally then to other people. I mean, isn't that the logical answer of how we should be living? I mean, as Christians, We should be set apart, noticeably different. We should be living what is called above reproach, which is simply holy and blameless. And this is not new stuff. I mean, Paul also echoed this in his Ephesians letter to the believers at the church of Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, some translations say, above reproach before him. We should be holy and blameless above reproach before him. Which, if you want to paraphrase or reword that, it basically means that our conduct as believers, as Christians, as we walk through this ugly society that we're living in, that's willing to accept almost anything, our society would nearly accept the actions by David and Bathsheba. Our society today would nearly find there's nothing wrong with that. That's just part of everyday life. So as we walk through that kind of ugly society that we're in, you could rephrase what David is saying here and what Paul is suggesting, that our conduct on a daily basis should not discredit or disgrace the love of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice he made for all humanity. It should not discredit, disgrace anything of our life. It should not tarnish Jesus, because they should see the light of Christ shining through us and something noticeably different. John Calvin stated, "The Christian are, we're Christians, are believers that our conduct should be the highest character, avoiding those sins that give man or woman." a disgraceful name that stains our reputation, in essence, above reproach. He states, to be above reproach does not mean sinless perfection, but rather a life of honor and integrity. Our lives should be indicative of others of a life of honor and integrity. Not sinless perfection, but living above reproach with honor. And integrity. Now, listen, it shall come as a surprise to no one that all culture, the society we're living in, if not already, is in one of a weakened integrity. People rarely talk about someone of integrity anymore. I mean, there are countless examples to illustrate this truth that we see every day. I mean, consider as recently as last week, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's already been brought up on allegations of sexual harassment, now have 11 women who have come forth that said that he has made some gesture, some harassment towards them. 11, which is very similar, if you remember, to other high-ranking politicians and officials throughout several years. But it's not just politicians that we can find that applies to. I mean, there's words, gestures, derogatory words being used constantly to describe other people. Paula Deen got in trouble like that. By the way, we've seen Paula Deen, not her actually, but last week while in Branson, they have this huge Paula Deen restaurant. In store, you can buy all these different things. So she's come, I mean, she's survived the remarks she said, but I mean, it happen to her too. Of course, Bill Cosby may be one of the worst. But think about all the different things that's happened in the last recent years. Even the Olympic gymnastic women's team was caught up in all those different things pertaining to Michigan State and their trainers. I mean, all these things are ugly. So this should come to no surprise that integrity is so often today just thrown out the window. Almost like you don't even need to be a person of honor and integrity anymore. You can survive without it. In fact, many people think you can get promoted quicker without integrity and honor. That's how our society is telling us that's right. I mean, there's countless examples. We just touched upon a few. But in my office at home, I have a Bible that's called the Men's Integrity Bible. The Bible is filled with personal testimonies of men who maybe have not lived that life of integrity and honor, who have fallen, but yet then rebounded to be an instrument and vessel of God. One of them is from a story named Dawson Trotman. And that name may not mean anything to you, but Dawson Trotman is the founder of Navigators. Now, if you don't know what Navigators is, Navigators is actually a Christian ministry that's worldwide, headquartered in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that has the purpose, the sole purpose of Navigators is to bring believers and Christians in with the primary focus of getting to be more comfortable of reaching out to others and sharing their faith. It's discipling people, Christians, Navigators does, so they are equipped to share their faith. So the story of Dawson Trotman is in the Men's Integrity Bible. And here's the story. He tells us the story of his high school days. All of us may have done some ignorant things during our high school days. I'm not the exception. I did some really stupid things, things my children don't even need to hear about. Things that we pray Isaac and Levi as they're getting into high school will never do. But he tells the story of his high school days. He said, first of all, he was the student body president captain of the basketball team and listen even the class valedictorian but all that then proved to be no avail to no benefit to him because years later his life just completely fizzled out he became a drunkard he drank to excess i mean he gambled he caroused women to all that is happening one night he was staggering through the streets A policeman stopped him, stopped him, took his car keys from him, and asked him, son, do you like living like this? But Trotman was honest at that point and told the policeman, no, he he hated living like that. So instead of arresting him, the policeman, during the time that Trotman was drunk on that occasion, just simply urged Dawson to change his life. Now Dawson, in his testimony then, says for him, that was an encounter that was a turning point for the rest of his life. He said that moment then, as he'd been given that bit of reprieve, he attended a church gathering where he was challenged to memorize 10 Bible verses stressing salvation. He memorized those 10 verses, returned to the church, and they gave him another 10 to memorize for the following week. He says several weeks later, as he pondered the meaning of what he had learned, what he had memorized. He quietly prayed, oh God, whatever it means to receive Jesus, I want to do it right now. Dawson Trotman, the founder of Navigators, discovered that he was absolutely positively wasting his life. He was not living above reproach. He was not living any kind of life of honor and integrity. And he changed his way, recognized that yes, that is the way in which we should be living. To live a life above reproach, striving to live a life of honor and integrity is a key step in avoiding the trap and the pitfalls we fall into with our enemy. And it certainly is the right approach to how we shall live. So then there's the question, is that how we are living? Are we living above reproach? Are we living in a way in which it could be described as blameless, of integrity, of honor, of holy? Are we living in such a way, in such a manner? I mean, the text today, as the message is being given to us, tells us that's the way we should be living. Not only is that how we should be living, it is the way to live and void the enemy. Now, he's not going to completely leave you alone. He's going to continue to tempt you. But when you have that kind of life, it's so much easier to tell him no. So is that how we're living? Above reproach. Not perfect, not sinless, but striving to be a man, a woman of honor and integrity. In the account we dissected for several weeks, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David certainly was not living, at least that moment in his life, a man of honor and integrity. This is a psalm written by David, granted probably years earlier, But if only David had followed his own words. As he got up on that afternoon, took a stroll to the rooftop, looked up on the horizon, seen this woman bathing, if only he had followed his own advice. I mean, if he had the story of Bathsheba and David together, we've been one of illustrating the way to overcome the enemy. I mean, the snare he throws in front of us, have been a way to overcome that. it been a great illustration to show that's how we overcome that rather than how it falls to be repetition of sin and bad decision after bad decision. I mean, the story of David and Bathsheba and 2 Samuel 11 is just one of how we should not live. Of how making bad decisions and wrong choices. I mean, in essence, I guess what we're saying here then is that David, if he had followed his own advice, he should have done precisely what Joseph did when Joseph was cornered by Potiphar's wife. Do you remember the story of Joseph? When Joseph was cornered by Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. Here's a, here's a quick look at it. Notice in verse 7, Genesis 39, Potiphar, master's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. A little different scenario than what David has got, right? But it's still similar to some extent. Verse 8, notice that that Joseph refused. Verse 10, she spoke each day to Joseph in this manner. He would not listen to her, to lie beside her, to be with her. But then one day, verse 11, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, again saying, lie with me, that Joseph began to take the action that David apparently did, not being critical of David, but just looking at his actions. No, Joseph left his garment in her hand and fled. And got out of the house. I mean, it's probably he got out of there as fast as he possibly could. Joseph chose to flee. David, when Satan played the trap and the snare was set, David chose to indulge. And once he did, the situation became really intense and very complicated. And once it became complicated, David's choice was to completely deny it ever happened and cover it up the best he could. If only David had followed the words that he had written earlier in life in Psalms 15. He asked the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? If only he had listened or remembered to his words. I mean, if he had, then things would have been noticeably quite different. I mean, in the psalm, it establishes the proper conduct in which we should be living, in which day we should be living, our way to life, the way we should walk and talk each day, to walk blamelessly, to do what is right, to speak troy- truth, avoid slander, to do no evil to your neighbor. That's what it's telling us. You hear that? David broke every one of them. Every one of those instructions he had written years earlier, he broke them all. He sought out Bathsheba, another man's wife. He lied about it. He covered it up. He denied it. He murdered him. He committed to have Joab to put Uriah in the very front where he knew it was going to be to the death of an innocent man. David broke every one of these instructions and advice that he offered people in how we shall live. So how shall we live? Well, not apparently by David's example back in Samuel chapter 11, but more by what he's telling us in Psalms 15, to obey God's precepts. But remember, it wasn't just to obey God's precepts, his instructions, his training, his principles. He was also trusting God's promises. Look with me at the very end of verse 5. Verse 5 says, He who does these things, after David said all that about how we should live, he said, He who does these things shall never be moved. Now the Hebrew word there for move comes from a word that means violent shaking. I mean, really serious violent shaking, like a, an earthquake, the, the most severe earthquake anybody's ever found or ever felt, would be used here in the Hebrew word for mood, Which is why the New American Standard says, he who does these things will never be shaken. So, David's saying, he who does all these things, as he's asked God how we shall live, come into your presence, to live blamelessly, to speak truth, to not mess with your neighbor, to do these things, you shall never be moved, you should never be shaken. Now, I want you to notice that is written as a promise from God. Which means that those who decide to live righteously, blamelessly, which we know is not sinless and perfect, but above reproach, will be on solid ground in their life. You'll be standing on solid ground when you live above reproach. Jesus echoed the same words, but he said it differently. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, life happens, the winds blew, beat on the house, temptation comes, but he, the house did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, again life happens, temptation comes, winds blow, the beat against the house, and it fell, he falls, he, she falls. And great was the fall of it. How great was David's fall? It was a horrendous fall indeed. If he only remembered what he had written in Psalms 15, when that temptation came after him. When the devil presented himself before David and all the beauty of Bathsheba, if only David would have remembered the advice he offered in Psalms 15 of how to avoid the entrapment and how to live. All that means that those who follow and obey that keep his precepts will have security, stability in life. I mean, everyone's, everyone really wants security and stability in life. I mean, it comes then of how we should live by obeying God's precepts and trusting God's promises. But here's the thing we got to hear. I mean, I said a lot, but you got to hear this too. That you choose to live in this manner. It's written in Psalms 15 to obey the precepts, trusting God's promises, walking blamelessly living above reproach, not ugly with your neighbor, definitely not stealing your neighbor's wife, not committing murder, not gossiping, slanderously, speaking honestly, truthfully, but living in all this way, here's the thing. You never have to worry about life. And you never have to live with fear. Our prayer list is extensive. We only briefly touched upon it as we do each time that we're together. There's so much we could update on the things pertaining to our prayer list. We just updated a few today. Lori has severe heart conditions that she's scared to death of. I mean, it's being recorded. She may listen to it earlier, but she knows this. I mean, she confided to me, and she said, I can share that with you. She has made out her obituary. She needs prayer. But at the same time, she told me, I'm not fearful. I don't have to worry. God's in control. I want to live by faith. When you choose to walk blamelessly above reproach, living the lifestyle described here, the David should have followed, you can live without fear. You don't have to worry. We still are in the pandemic as much as I hate that. The Delta variant is all we hear about. Seems to be coming back with force. But you don't have to worry about it. You have to live in fear if you're walking blamelessly above reproach, doing the things that's outlined here in Psalm 15. Obeying God's precepts, trusting God. Financial burdens exist everywhere. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be in fear of tomorrow. Nora is having more tests this week on her keyboard for the next steps she'll take. But she's not living in fear. She's not worried about tomorrow because she's living by faith. She's keeping God's precepts, and she's trusting God's promises. Now, we know this. We know this. But this does not make sense of how we can live without fear, how we can look forward to tomorrow, how we don't ever have to worry, it makes no sense to a non-believer. No sense. I mean, they'll rather look at you and think, how can you live without fear of the unknown? How can you never have to worry? But we know we can only do so through Jesus Christ, through God, through keeping His Word, and also trusting His promises. When we obey His teachings, when we trust Him, It gives us a peace, a calmness, and assurance to get us through any storm that happens in life. And yes, the storms are there. So today we have this message because what all of us, if we have not done yet so, to choose to live by obeying and trusting. Father, Lord, this message today is one that we take to heart, and we thank you for providing it for us and for giving it to us, Lord. I do pray to all of us who are collectively together, recognizing that many women, many men, on a prayer list are in desperate need. Lord, we pray each week that you put your healing hand upon them. And I even do so again now, Lord, pray that you'll be with each and every person We don't recall them by name each week, Lord, but you know exactly those people who are are on our heart that are crying out for help. We pray, Lord, today that you provide that for them, but also for us. Lord, that we can be here today and receive this message to know that there is a way we can live righteously, blamelessly above reproach. And it's by only obeying you and trusting you. So Lord, today we position ourselves to do so. We thank you for how this message directs us in the way we shall live. And let us today commit our way to you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray.